So today, <clears throat> actually today we were singing a song, uh, is Amazing Love, and one of the refrains is, Jesus, you are my king. Jesus, you are my king. Who here, just by a show of hands, would agree to the statement that Jesus is Lord? Just Who would agree to the statement that Jesus is Lord right now? Not just someday, but also right now. Well, I've got good news. You're right. And today we celebrate that. Today is Christ the King Sunday. I love this holiday. I love this holiday because so far they haven't figured out like Cadbury, well, sorry, I'm not supposed to name names. <laughs> Candy companies and card companies haven't figured out how to make money on it yet, so it hasn't been co-opted by our culture. This is purely a church holiday, celebrating the reality that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. I love this holiday, too, because it reminds me that not only is Jesus king, who has a kingdom that is coming one day, but he's also king right now, that he is Lord right now. And I love this holiday, too, because it also expands my understanding of what Jesus has done. On the cross, for example, Jesus saved us from our sin. That sin no longer has to separate us from our Father in heaven. But he did a whole lot more than that, too. That Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to God's right hand where he sits and reigns right now, Jesus is Lord. God is king over the world. I love that good news. This is actually a newer church holiday. It wasn't until 1925 that this became an official part of the church year. And it rose in the church in that time as church officials, as people were watching as Christians, began following uh, different national parties in different countries. And they were wondering, what is happening here? How are followers of Jesus following these different dictators, these different dictators that were rising? One of the examples that came afterward in the 30s and 40s, was how, like an extreme example of this, is the the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church in Germany supporting the Nazi party. And Christians wondering, how does this happen? And so the church started celebrating the reality that Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord right now. And we still need that holiday today. We still need to remember that Jesus is Lord even today. I need Christ the King Sunday. (laughs) Over these last few years of watching elections happening first in Canada and then the U.S., I need to remember that Jesus is Lord. Because honestly, I'm pretty discouraged by what I've seen over the last few years. First of all, I'm discouraged by what I've seen as just horrible choices. (laughs) You know, I feel like as a Christian, I would love to see, or even just as a a person, (laughs) I would love to see choices where I was thinking to myself, ooh, that person is really good. Look at their character and their ability and the gifts that they have. They would be wonderful, but you know what? I'm going to vote for that person because they're just a little bit better. I wish it was like that. I find myself thinking actually the opposite. Oh, this is horrible (laughs) and that. But you know what? They're not quite as bad as the other person. (laughs) So I feel discouraged as I look at the political systems, both in Canada and the U.S. And I'm also discouraged by the rhetoric that I've seen happening in the church. 
brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, who go along with seems more like party lines than the gospel. And it's frustrating to me. I, um, this last while, I like, read stuff on Facebook. I try not to do that anymore. <laughs> and I'm discouraged because it seems to me like I, there's a lot more people in the church who I'd say have uh, more of an affiliation with a party line and just happen to attend church on Sunday than Christians who have to vote. It's discouraging for me. I was thinking about this last year, uh, we had the election in Canada, and I remember talking with people, followers of Jesus, people who I think were trying to do the best to follow, who were so excited about the new government in Canada. And I started thinking to myself, do you realize how many policies there are of that particular government that go against the kingdom of God, that go against the gospel and what it teaches? And some of you are shaking your heads, yes, yes. And then this year, <laughs> the election in the U.S., and how many people were so excited about that government being elected? And I find myself asking my same question, how can you be so excited, how can we be so excited about a, a new government that has so many policies that go against the kingdom of God. And I started thinking about these two different policies, and you know, we've got the, the, the conservative and the liberal and the NDP here in Canada, and Republican and Democrat in the U.S., and they're all, to me, just same two sides, or here in Canada, three sides, if that works, three sides of the same coin, the same government system, secular system. If you ask me, I would still say that I would say that they are just new versions of the same old Babylon. These different government systems that try to co-opt us. It's discouraging for me. And so I need Christ the King Sunday. Because what do we do? How do we move from here? <laughs> Where do we go from here? How do we hear the word of God remind us that Jesus is Lord? that Jesus is king, that above everything else, we are citizens of that kingdom. So I want to start, if you would, open your Bibles to Philippians. Actually, sorry, uh, we're going to be in with Isaiah. If you'd like to, or in some bulletin here, there's both passages. This first passage comes from Isaiah 45. And this is the Lord God speaking who says this. This is an excerpt from one of the things he says in Isaiah. The Lord God says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will save me, and the Lord alone are righteous, righteousness and strength. So keep that in mind as we read this next section from Philippians. If you want to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, or just continue reading here on the sheet. This is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray to hear this text this morning. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit, we pray for your help. Help us as we hear your word. As we take Paul's words to the church in Philippi and we try to understand them and to apply them to our lives here in Balfour. We pray for your Holy Spirit to help us. We pray for your help. Amen. <clears throat> so as I'm reading this passage, I'm encouraged because I'm reminded that one, Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord right now. But to understand this, we need to hear some of the context that's happening, some of the situation that's happening uh, around the church in Philippi. So you see, Paul's writing this letter, probably, well actually he's writing it from Rome, where he's imprisoned for the gospel, and he's writing it to a church in Philippi. Now you see, the church in Philippi is a little bit interesting because Philippi uh, was a Roman city in Greek territory. Rome would set up cities almost like colonies in the Roman Empire. There's a ways to promote Roman values, to bring uh, honor to Rome, to bring allegiance to Rome. There were some important battles that were fought just outside of Philippi. And so as a result of that, they, they made Philippi, they bestowed it with the honor of being a Roman city. And so many of the people inside Philippi became Roman citizens. They were granted citizenship. Just poof, one day you're a citizen, which was enormous, um, a huge advantage in the Roman Empire. If you weren't a citizen, all sorts of things could happen to you. But if you were a citizen, you had all sorts of rights and privileges. So Philippi is filled with Roman citizens. Not only that, but there were a lot of expats, people who were moved, who were given territory and land in Philippi or around the city. And so you had Romans who were there, living there. You had retired soldiers who had moved there, who, had given, who were given property and title in Philippi. So lots of people with lots of ties to Rome live in Philippi. Not only that, but they also began to have, they build monuments to Roman gods, monuments to Caesars, and they would even have holidays. I mean, throughout the Roman Empire, but you can imagine what they were like in Philippi. Holidays where they had, or festivals where they would celebrate the Caesar. The Caesar at that time, uh, as scholars can best guess, was Nero. Many of you have heard of the Caesar Nero, the ways that he persecuted Christians. It's interesting because Nero, at his time, he loved to go by the title Lord and Savior. Interesting, right? After 2,000 years of hearing Scripture, we think of Lord and Savior, we think of Jesus. But in the Roman world, that title was for Caesars, not for Messiahs who came out of Israel and were crucified on crosses. That was a title you gave to Caesar. To just get an idea of what Philippi is like, um, imagine like one of the most patriotic cities you've ever been to where it's Canada Day and all the flags are flying and all the kids are wearing red and white, Philippi was extremely loyal to Rome. 
So you can imagine, and Paul touches on some of it, if you read Philippians closely, you start to see some of the places where they are experiencing persecution. The church experiencing persecution because one, their allegiance is not so much to the Roman Empire as it is to the kingdom of God. Or Philippi where they say Lord and Savior and they mean Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, not Nero. As you can imagine, when they're at festivals and everybody says the pledge to Caesar and they start talking about Lord and Savior and all the Christians go quiet and their lips stop moving. Or when they don't even show up at all and people begin to persecute them. It's into this situation that Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi. Now, these words that Paul writes, he says, Jesus, being in very nature God, being essentially God, being completely God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp or to snatch at or to take for his own advantage. But he emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a servant and became human. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. To just summarize what Paul is saying there is, he's saying that Jesus, who was God, the Son, completely God, also became completely human. He wasn't faking humanity. He wasn't putting on a human suit for a little while. He actually became fully human. At the same time, he was fully God. And I know that in human terms, this seems impossible to understand. And I think in some ways it is. It is beyond human understanding how God can do this. But he shows us what real leadership is like. Real leadership doesn't snatch at power and say and do anything they have to to get more of it. They humble themselves. True leaders humble themselves and become obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So Jesus shows us what leadership is like. And then because as God says, therefore... God has exalted him to the highest place. And I want to stop there and just take a second. So if you look at the grammar, if you want to even look in your blue sheet there, it says, God has exalted him. What tense is that? Past. Yeah, it's the perfect tense. Actually, the past perfect in the sense that he has and it still has meaning right now. Not that God will exalt him someday, but that God has exalted him right now. And exalted him to the highest place. And I don't necessarily mean that, I don't think that means in terms of position. I think that's actually he's exalted to the same status as God, is what Paul's getting at here. But highest in the sense that he is above every lord, ruler, king, dictator, president, prime minister, every person on earth. Jesus is higher. He has been exalted to the highest place. and given him the name. Now what does he mean by the name, right? It's hard. Like in our uh, 21st century Balfour, we name, what name? But in Jewish context, when you say the name, there is one name you mean. Actually today in in, uh, many Jewish circles, they don't refer to the Lord God as my Lord, or even that they say Hashem, which means the name. He has given him the Lord God has given him the name. 
that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, meaning all of creation should bow and every tongue should confess. Does that sound anything like like what the Lord God said in Isaiah? It says, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that not, will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. In Isaiah, it's the Lord who's speaking, Yahweh. In Philippians, Paul is saying that the Lord has made Jesus also the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue should confess. And it's interesting because I've always read this. I always have read it as every knee will bow, every knee will confess. And I believe that's true, that one day Christ is coming. I pray that it's soon. Christ is coming and every knee will realize who he is. I'm sorry, every knee will bow and every person will realize who Jesus is. But it's interesting because in the text, I was reading it and realizing this week that it actually says every knee should bow. Every tongue should confess. It corrected me that even this is a current reality. While there's a lot of people around us, right, who will not bow to Jesus, who would not confess that he is Lord, Every knee should. Every tongue should. It's the reality right now that Jesus is Lord. But it's interesting because he says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And when we hear Lord, I I wonder what you hear. Because I was, you know, wasn't really raised in the church, but when I heard Lord, I thought of Jesus. And I usually think of Lord as in like master or or the one who I uh, follow. But it's interesting because I wonder how this would sound in a Jewish group where you hear the word Lord. See, following the fourth commandment, the people of Israel, they wouldn't say uh, Yahweh. They wouldn't say it. So actually in most of, um, well actually in the Old Testament, instead of saying Yahweh, they would, they would read uh, yod heh the name for God. They would read that and they would say Adonai. And then over years, even that went to Hashem, um, to the name. They wouldn't even say, my Lord. Even that was too close because they never wanted to take the Lord's name in vain. So in the Hebrew text, it's Adonai, which is my Lord. And when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, it's a Greek book called the Septuagint. Uh, Jewish scholars uh, wanted to translate into Greek. They translated Adonai into kurios, which you don't have to worry about the Greek and the Hebrew, but just realize that they translate it as my Lord. So in the New Testament, where most, if not all, of the references to the Old Testament use the Greek Septuagint, they refer to God as Lord, as the Lord. That's why we have, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. In Hebrew, it actually says you shall not take Yahweh's name in vain. In Greek, it says you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. 
My point is that to a Jewish group, to people who were maybe fresh out of the synagogue, or even Gentiles who had the idea of Lord, when they say that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, Paul is saying a whole lot more here than just a king. That Jesus is Lord like Yahweh is Lord. Like the God of Israel is Lord. So that's interesting <laughs> for, for a Jewish group around him. But how would this have sounded to the Greeks in Philippi? Because they knew another person by the title Kurios or Lord. Caesar. Caesar was called Lord. And so for Paul to say that Jesus is Lord, this Messiah, this Savior from Israel, from Nazareth, this little backwater town part of the, the far east end of the Roman Empire, to say that he is Lord was scandalous. But nonetheless, every tongue will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I hear this and it, it's encouraging for me. It reminds me that Jesus is Lord right now. That Jesus is King right now. That we are citizens of his kingdom above everything else right now. And that we live following him. So what does this mean for us now to kind of circle back? What does this mean for us in our faith today? Well, in one way, I think it means challenge for us. It means challenge for the church. Maybe not us particularly as a church, but challenge for the church. Challenge for the parts of the church where we find ourselves quoting party lines rather than scripture. We find ourselves talking about society more along the line of a particular political party than along the lines of the kingdom of God. So as I'm hearing uh, Philippians this morning, I'm hearing a call for us to speak about our world, about our society, the way Jesus taught us to speak. So that we talk about, for example, human sexuality, the way Jesus taught us to speak. That we talk about difficult issues like abortion, the way Jesus taught us to speak. That we talk about important things like freedom, the way Jesus taught us to speak. That we talk about the way we care for poor and for the disenfranchised and the weak, the way Jesus taught us to pray or to speak. That we talk about the environment, also known as God's good creation, the way Jesus taught us to speak. That we talk about immigrants and refugees, the way Jesus taught us to speak. We talk about enemies and war, the way Jesus taught us to speak. That we draw who we are and our identity and the way we talk out of the reality that we are citizens of the kingdom of God above everything else. That we don't get caught up just repeating party lines. So I hear, first of all, I hear this message as a message of challenge. But I also hear it as a message of hope. That Jesus is king right now that Jesus is Lord right now. That his kingdom has begun here on earth and we wait for it to come one day soon, for his kingdom to come, 
for him to make all things right and good. And I use the word hope on purpose. I was talking with a friend of mine. And hope has been abused in our political world. (laughs) I'm frustrated by the way that hope has been used even as a way to get people on board. Hope and change and things are going to be amazing and then nothing happens and it's still the same old broken system. And I hear people who are discouraged with the word hope. But long before politicians ever caught on to the idea of how important hope was, it was essential to the biblical message, to the New, to the New Testament, to the gospel. Paul talks about three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. The opposite of hope. Without hope, we have nothing but despair. Despair causes us to quit, to lay down. But hope helps us keep moving forward, to keep following Jesus even when it's difficult, to speak the way the kingdom, the way that Jesus has taught us to speak even when it's hard, even when it means that we will be persecuted by others. As I hear this reality that Jesus is Lord, that he has been exalted to the highest place, I have hope. That I hear that he has been given the name that is above every name and that at his name, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I have hope. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I have hope. And not the sort of hope that just says, you know, sometimes we say, I hope it will happen. We mean, I hope, but it probably won't. By hope, I mean faith in things that we don't see yet. Faith in things unseen. In the church, that's what hope means. Faith in things unseen. Realities that we know are true, but we're waiting for them to be fulfilled. This morning is Christ the King Sunday. And I need Christ the King Sunday after these last few years to remember the good news that Jesus is Lord, that we are citizens of his kingdom, and that he is coming. That's our hope. Amen.